All right, this message is called How to Be a Wise Human. I can't say a wise man because that's not, you know, inclusive enough. So how to be a wise human. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So they came to the King Herod and said, hey, we heard there's another king that's been born, which may not be a good idea. Herod didn't know, so he called in his Bible scholars and said, what, what do you know? Somebody, they said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod told the wise men, he was born in Bethlehem. When you find him, let me know. I want to worship him too. So after they'd heard the king, verse 9, they went on their way, and the star they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, first, a little disclaimer. Your nativity scene probably has it wrong. If the wise men are at the manger, that's probably not right. Herod wanted all the baby boys two years and younger to be killed. And so the baby was probably 18 months to two years old by the time the wise men got there. And you know why they were late, right? Because if you've got three smart guys traveling together, not one of them's ever going to stop and ask for directions. <laughs> you know that's true, all right? Finally, God said, oh, good grief, guys. Just here, follow this star. Does anybody else ever struggle making decisions? I mean, I'm lousy. I hate to make a decision. I envy people who, who know the right thing to do. It's like they intuitively know, oh, this is the right thing to do. And their decisions prove to be right. Now, I'll probably come to the same conclusion they did, but it takes me three days. I just, I can't make a quick decision. And there's no season of life that puts my indecisiveness on display more clearly than Christmas. And no activity that illustrates it more profoundly than buying Christmas presents. Anybody else but me? Oh my goodness, what, what, what should I get her? I don't know. Well, she said she doesn't want anything. Do I believe her? What's the answer, ladies? No, you don't believe her. Okay, so here's a scenario, hypothetically. If a woman says, I'd really like to have some new cookware, do you get it? No, not for Christmas. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. I've got a major drip going this morning. So what if she said she doesn't want anything and this cookware is really expensive, so that way it's kind of, it's an extravagant gift. Do you get it for her? No, you don't get it for her. Well, what if her grandma was a wonderful cook and she's, she's never really had time because she works real hard to do those things, but, but she's been sentimental about missing her grandma, and she said, I'd like to have the same cookware grandma, got, grandma had so I could learn to cook some of grandma's recipes. Then do you buy her the cookware? No, not for Christmas. You buy it for something else, not for Christmas, right? I think so. You know, we all wrestle with what, what are we supposed to do? What's the right thing to do? I want to get it right. I don't want to get it wrong. And we wrestle with that about things much more consequential than Christmas gifts through all seasons of life. I suspect every one of you knows what it is to have some place you want to be, something you want to do, a destination you want to reach, and you just don't know how to get there. I mean, maybe it's in a relationship. Well, should I or shouldn't I? What's the right thing to do? Is she the one? Is he Mr. Right? I don't know. 
financially, you think, man, should, should, I, should I borrow and get it now? Or, or should I wait until I've saved it up? And believe it or not, sometimes those answers are different. Professionally, should I take the job? I'm, I'll make more money, but I have to work more hours. Be away from my family more. What's the right thing to do? Morally, ethically, we wrestle with, man, I just, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It seems like they're both right, but neither one's perfect. What, what are we supposed to do? Life is an endless series of decisions, each one of which in the past has led us in some way to where we are today, and each one which we make today pointing us toward a future which we can't clearly see. And man, wouldn't it be nice if we just had a star we could follow to get where we want to go, to always make the right decision. Andy Stanley, who's a pastor and an author and a leadership guru and just a brilliant communicator, has a book called Ask It, and then he has a sermon that goes with it called The Best Question, and then he has another sermon within a series called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, and in that book, in those sermons, he gives a template or a framework to help us make better decisions. He said, the question to ask is, is it wise? Is it the wise thing to do? I mean, that's what we're talking about. Wisdom is knowing how to do, knowing what is the right thing to do in any particular situation. And if we don't have that framework to ask the question, is this the wise thing to do? We ask the wrong questions. We say, well, is it wrong? It's not wrong. Oh, it's probably all right. Is it illegal? No. Well, then it's, it's permissible. Is it immoral? No, it's not really immoral. Then it's acceptable. Is it over the line? No, then it's fine. We ask the wrong questions. Because, you know, it isn't illegal to spend more than you can afford on your credit card. But that doesn't mean it's wise. It isn't morally wrong to binge Netflix the night before a final exam. But that doesn't mean it's wise. So to help identify the wise thing to do, Andy says you have to ask this clarifying question. In light of my past experiences, my present circumstances, my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? In light of my past experiences, do I have a history of taking ridiculous risks and falling on my face? Do I have a history of entering into relationships thinking I can change that person and end up losing myself and being changed, then maybe you need to pause and think. In light of my present circumstances, am I in an emotionally healthy place? Am I stable? Am I simply looking for an easy escape from a difficult spot? Is this situation I'm in likely to last a long time, or is it just seasonal and I can just wait it out? And in light of your future hopes and dreams, will making this decision today make it more or less likely that I will end up where I want to be, whether that's spiritually, relationally, financially, professionally, in any arena, in light of where I want to be, will this decision help me move there? And so Andy says, consider all of these things before deciding what is the wise thing to do. Now, I think that's smart. I think that's helpful. I think that makes sense. You don't have to be a Jesus follower to see that applying that decision truly could lead to better decisions and fewer regrets. At any time, biblically-backed principles make, lives, make our lives better. They connect with where we are. Then I'm all for it. Yeah, let's do that. But honestly, that's good advice. 
But it's not even a biblical principle. All right, that's, that's incredibly smart. It's incredibly relevant. And I'm not criticizing anything he said. Again, in the sermons and in the books, he delves more into biblical principles. But anybody who's smart and thinks could have come up with that same question. All right, so we don't want to say, well, here's all you need to live the life God's calling you to. I think we can all agree. We all want to make wise choices. Anybody plan to mess up their life? No. The problem is we don't always plan not to. We all want to make wise choices. And as a, as, as a Jesus follower, I want to make biblically wise choices. And I don't say that because I'm a minister. I say that because I was raised to believe that the Bible really is a reliable source of wisdom. Uh, I got a new Bible this week, and in the notes on Proverbs chapter 1, it said, Wisdom grounded in the fear of the Lord is our north star. It's the most important coordinate we use to determine where we're going to go. And I believe that's true. In the book of Proverbs, written by Solomon, who was, his reputation is the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon characterizes wisdom as a true and noble woman who's worth pursuing. Even when other women, let's say more available women, are calling us, enticing us to turn aside from our pursuit. Solomon was such a man, wasn't he? What a man thing to say. Solomon says, don't listen to those women. Don't turn aside. And then in the first four chapters, he lays out these benefits of pursuing and attaining wisdom. He says, you'll have long life. You'll have better health. You'll have peace. You'll have protection from evil people. You'll have happiness. You'll have favor with God and man. He even says, you'll have more restful sleep at night. I think all he left out was a thicker, greener lawn, whiter teeth, and fresher breath. I think if we could have those two, it would be the complete package. So, yeah, we all want that, right? So why is it so hard to get? Why is it so hard to recognize true godly wisdom? Why is it so hard to live that way? Well, I think it's because, because godly wisdom doesn't always make sense from our limited perspective, our human perspective our steeped-in-the-world perspective. I don't think you'll find this definition in a dictionary, but our culture, I think, would define wisdom as some cocktail of intuition, insight, and discernment, people smarts. Put those things together, and you can make good decisions. That, I think, is a pretty good working definition of wisdom in our time. And I would say we would define good decisions as anything that advances our interests. Well, as you would expect, the biblical definition is a little bit different. There's a gap in understanding. There's a gap in expectation, and there's definitely a gap in application of biblical wisdom versus worldly wisdom. There always has been, and I think there always will be until Jesus returns. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul confronts this gap head on. So here's the context. Corinth was a metropolitan city on a trade route. People from all over the world came there. And so there was every pursuit that people could want available to them. It was populated by large numbers of Romans, Greeks, Hellenistic Jews who'd been influenced by Greek thought. And it it was a culture that was more interested in material prosperity and philosophical diversity than it was in pursuing spiritual truth. And I think maybe we could identify with that culture a little bit. 
Now, the Greek word for wisdom, which Paul's going to use dozens of times in this passage, the Greek word is sophia, S-O-P-H-I-A, sophia. So in about the 4th or 5th century B.C., so, you know, four or 500 years before Paul came along to Corinth, there was a class of people called sophists who were considered experts in their field. And a sophist, you could be a sophist at masonry or at plumbing or at, at any trade, at any craft, the very best of the best, they're considered sophists. Man, they're so good at what they do. It was a term of respect. Now, by the first century, by the time Paul came along, that word applied less to tradesmen and craftspeople and more to the philosophers because they liked their words. They liked their stories in Corinth. The sophists, by Paul's time, were the experts at debating, the experts at persuading people to adopt new perspectives, to see the world from in ways they'd never seen it before. Wisdom wasn't determined by the content of your thought as much as by your ability to get others to see your perspective and to take your side. And, and it was serious business. Students of rival teachers would fight over whose was better. There, there's a One of the historians tells a story of a heckler. So there was an orator making his argument. The orator had disciples. The disciples had slaves. And somebody was heckling the orator. And so the disciples' slaves beat the guy to death for criticizing their master's master. It was, it was serious business. So the understanding of wisdom by Paul's time was evolving, being redefined. Again, it went from experts in a craft or a trade, people who could do something, to experts in persuasion. And it kept evolving to the point that sophistry has come to mean, and this one is from the dictionary, subtly deceptive reasoning, faulty arguments intended to deceive. And so you're an expert in lying and deceiving. Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with the fallout of this evolution that was taking place. And when you read through, he says, remember when I came to Corinth? Remember when I preached the gospel? He said, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words. I'm not a sophist. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a debater here to impress you with my oratory. He said, I'm a preacher, and I had one message. Christ crucified. In the church at Corinth, factions had actually developed because Paul's a better speaker than Apollos. No, Apollos is a better speaker with Paul, and they're fighting about whose teacher is better. And then, well, my teacher's better, and he baptized me, so my baptism's better than yours. You're a loser because my... Within the church, and so Paul writes to say, no, that's not the wisdom that we pursue. So in 1 Corinthians 17, or chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize in response to this arguing about whose baptism was better, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. I didn't come to impress you with my words. I came to impress you with the gravity of the cross. The power of the gospel isn't found in the expertise of the communicator. And all God's people said, you got that right. But it's found in the saving work of Jesus on the cross. But not everybody could get on board. Verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross, and that is the focus of this whole discussion, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And I want you to notice how these things are equated. We'll get to it more in a minute. But strength and power are equated with wisdom. That's the winning position. It's the highest virtue and weakness. 
powerlessness. Well, that's, that's foolish. That's undesirable. Paul then quotes from Isaiah 29, For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. God says, I'm going to do some things that simply don't make sense. I'm not bound by the rules of the game you play. So in verse 20, Paul asks, so where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now remember, Paul's talking to believers. He's talking to believers about the cross, about their initial faith in a crucified and risen Savior, a faith that's being challenged and weakened by the wisdom of the age. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Verse 22, For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. What is a sign? It's a, it's a demonstration of power. If you remember in the ministry of Jesus, people were saying, Jesus, show us a sign. Jesus, what more, what more do you need to see? I've shown you all you need, but you keep just asking for more and more power. You won't believe even if I rise from the dead, he said. And then wisdom, that denotes persuasiveness, cleverness. Jews ask for signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. Since it's Christmas, there's nothing powerful about a baby in a manger. There's nothing clever about a cross. To people looking for power, a crucified criminal, that's the exact opposite. And he says that they stumble, they can't get past that. And to people who think wisdom is defined by who wins, or the one who's most persuasive, the one that makes the most sense. Well, a dying Savior doesn't make sense. But, Paul says in verse 24, because God's wisdom is so much higher than ours, there's always a but. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ. And here's the crux of his argument. Here's the hinge on which everything turns. Paul says, maybe you're embarrassed by me the messenger. Maybe you're embarrassed by the message of a crucified Messiah, but you're going to have to deal with Jesus. You can't have the benefits of salvation without it affecting your life. You can't have Christ plus you still play the game your way and get ahead and care about impressing people. You can't wrap salvation up in a pretty package because it was purchased with blood. So, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, the cross of Christ is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul says he is the standard. He is the North Star. He defines the rules of the game. Now, I know this is kind of abstract. Let's see if we can bring it home. Now, Paul goes on to say, verses 26 through 29, he said, God didn't call you because you were something. God hasn't called you to be something he says, you were nothing when you were saved, and it's your very nothingness that God uses to upend the systems of somethingness, the drive to be important, to be powerful, to be connected, to be wealthy, to be noticed, to be successful, to, to win. 
No, that's not what God calls you to. Worldly wisdom is all about making your life greater, increasing your stature, but God in his wisdom became less. Born as a baby, raised in obscurity, ministering in futility, it would seem, despised and rejected, dying in agony. Paul says, yeah, that's God's wisdom. One of my commentaries defined biblical wisdom as practical skill in living under the fear of the Lord. And that's what Jesus did in in submission to the Father, the creator, the sustainer of life, the judge. Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then to us, he said, now, come follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Wherever I lead, follow So that means when we have decisions to make, we ask different questions. Better questions even than Andy Stanley's. Harder questions with harder answers because we're called to different and better outcomes. So if it's a decision about finances, the question isn't about my future hopes and dreams and retirement plans. In decisions about relationships, it's not about what I want or what I think I deserve. In decisions about our careers, it's not what about advances my image and my comfort and my reputation. I understand following Jesus doesn't mean that you stop saving and that you marry whoever comes along and you can't climb the corporate ladder. Our calling isn't to say, I'm miserably unhappy, fall to the glory of God. No, that's not it. But when worldly wisdom conflicts with biblical wisdom, it's learning to recognize the difference and decide, I'm going to go with the guy who died because he rose again, and that seems like a better long-term plan. Verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, It is because of him, because of his provision, because of his desire to be reconciled to all whose sin has separated them It's because of his great love that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, what is wisdom? Righteousness, holiness, redemption. He is the only means by which we are saved. He is the north star around which we orient our lives. So our memory verse this week in Core 52, that's a year-long journey through Scripture that we're pursuing together, and you can get on board at any time. Our memory verse this week simply says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Having a growing understanding of who God is, what God has done, who we are, why we're here, all of those elements of developing a biblical worldview— That should change our priorities. It should change our perspectives. It should teach us to see wisdom not as doing the things which best accomplish my purposes or satisfies my desires, but it asks the question, what choice before me is in line with the holy character, the unassailable purity of the one who has made provision for and will ultimately determine my eternal fate. Does this relationship move me closer? Does this purchase take me further along toward accomplishing the purpose for which God made me? Does this career move 
bring me closer to him. So I want to look again at Andy Stanley's formula and apply it within this larger framework of biblical wisdom. Learning the practical skill of living under the fear of the Lord. So in light of my past experiences, well, my past experiences say I have messed things up. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. There's no one righteous, not even one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. My past experience is no different than yours. I try to get it right, and I don't. And that separates me from God. Well, in light of my present circumstances, each day brings its own share of temptations and challenges and frustrations and worries, along with opportunities and possibilities and divine appointments. So in light of the fact that I'm a sinner and every day is just a mixed bag that you don't know what's coming, in light of my future hopes and dreams, who do I want to be spiritually? Who has God created me to be? What impact do I want to have as a steward of the time God has given me? Where do I want to spend eternity? In light of that, what's the wise thing to do? So the Magi, we meet in Matthew 2. We don't usually call them Magi. What do we call them? Wise men. And what did the wise men do? They followed the star that God put in front of them. Our guiding star is God's upside-down, inside-out, counterintuitive, countercultural wisdom. And wisdom's name is Jesus. He is the wisdom and power of God. So like the wise men, follow. Bring your gifts. Bring your talent and charisma and abilities and drive. Bring it all and lay them at his feet because God doesn't give us the gifts we have so we can build nice lives for ourselves here. God gives us the gifts that we have so we can build, so we can expand, so we can multiply his kingdom and lay up treasures for ourselves in the kingdom and in the life that lasts forever. So like the wise men, bring your gifts. Bow in worship because he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Father, you know the irony of me standing up and talking about wisdom because I like it in so many ways. So God, I'm thankful that I don't have to be anybody's North Star, but God, I pray that you use me to point to it, point to you. And the calling that you've given us to say, man, get off the, get off the wheel and come and make your life count. I think it's James that says, if we ask for wisdom, you give generously without finding fault. So God, we ask, make us wise, not in ways that help us do what we want. God, make us wise in ways that help us become who you've created us to be so we can experience the joy of living in your plan and purpose and will for our lives. 
God, may we all know the safety of going against the flow and standing on the rock. His name is Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.